because I definitely could not have sung that. Uh, my name's Alex. Uh, if you haven't met me before, it'd be great to have a chat after the service. I'm uh, one of the assistant ministers here. That delightful fairy floss of a song that we just enjoyed uh, is from the Disney movie Enchanted. And the main character, Princess Giselle, sings this song as advice to the man, Robert, about his girlfriend. So Robert's not a very romantic soul, as you may be able to tell from that video. And Giselle asks him, well, how will she know that you love her unless you send her little notes? Give her flowers, take her out dancing. How will she know? Uh, depending on how romantic a soul you are, uh, you might find this lovely or slightly cloying, a bit of both maybe. Uh, but that's the point of this song. In our culture, this is truth wrapped up in a sweet, funny package. Everyone wants to find and feel true love. That question of whether someone loves us can be an exciting one to ask at the beginning of a new romantic relationship, 
But in other contexts, it can be a tragic question. Does my spouse really love me? Does my parent love me? Does my child love me? Perhaps the answer was obvious in the past, but now you're not so sure. We all want to know that we're loved. And being loved by God is the most important experience, uh, important love that we can experience. But how do we know if God really loves us? Do you ever ask this question deep in the privacy of your own heart? You may have heard a million sermons or read the Bible from front to back and intellectually know that God loves you, but still you ask the question, does God really love me? You could be asking this question right now with pride or disinterest. You're weighing up your options and seriously considering whether it's worthwhile to keep following God. Do you really love me, God? Or as you walked into church today, you might be feeling close to collapse. You're exhausted and despairing. And to be honest, giving up seems like the only possible option. You feel like God has abandoned you. Do you really love me, God? Or perhaps you've only heard distantly about God's love. Maybe you wandered wandered into this building because of the sign out the front that says Jesus loves you. But how can we know that? And what does it even matter if Jesus loves us? He doesn't seem to have any power in this broken world. Well, Malachi, the prophet, spoke to a community who were questioning God's love. And as we go through the book of Malachi over the next three weeks, we'll see that for the Israelites, all their problems, all their doubts come from this main overwhelming question. Does God really love us? I have loved you, says the Lord in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. But you ask, how have you loved us? Uh, Let me set the scene. Malachi was a prophet who spoke God's word to Israel sometime in the 4th or 5th century BC. Uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so it's God's last word before we reach the Gospels uh, and the stories of Jesus' life about 400 years later. The Old Testament book that we looked at most recently as a church uh, was Daniel last year. So Daniel is set in Babylon sometime in the 6th century, during the time when Israel was in exile from the Promised Land. The Israelites were in exile because they'd been unfaithful to God and broken the covenant that he'd made with them. They were unjust to the poor and vulnerable. They were violent to one another. And they didn't worship God the way that he deserved. And ultimately, this was a rejection of God's love. And so just as the Lord had warned them many, many times, eventually they were attacked and defeated by the Babylonian Empire. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed, as was the temple, and the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon. And Daniel was one of those who experienced the trauma of the exile. Then, after 70 years in exile, the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem, to God's holy city and to the site of the temple which they rebuilt. But life still hasn't turned out the way the Israelites thought it would. 
by the time that we're in Malachi. They're still an occupied country under the control of the Persian Empire. They don't have an Israelite king. Uh, the temple is smaller and less impressive than the old one. And the community was also experiencing famine, poverty, and opposition from surrounding people groups. God's mighty deliverance from exile and the promise of a new beginning, well, his promises have lost their shine a bit. And so the people have become apathetic and cynical. They're being unjust to the poor and vulnerable, violent to one another, as we'll find out in next week's passage. And they're also failing to worship God the way that he deserves, as we read in today's passage. Yet again, God's people are doubting God's love. And while some individuals in Israel were still humbly following God, the overall attitude of the community in Malachi is confrontational. The book is filled with a series of questions and disputes between God and his people. So it's like a scene out of, uh, you know, your favourite courtroom drama. And at the beginning of chapter one, we have the first tense exchange. God declares his love for Israel, but is met by disbelief. And so God responds by reminding his people that he has shown his love for them by choosing them. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Could you go back to the other one? Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So there's a bit of history behind these words. Uh, in the book of Genesis, Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Jacob and uh, sorry of Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac was the son of Abraham, who God had chosen to bless as the forefather of the Israelite nation. So we've got Abraham, Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau was the older of the twins, and so the promise of God's blessing should have passed to him, according to the customs of that time. But instead, God chooses Jacob, the younger son, to build the nation of Israel. And so in the hundreds of years that follow, just like Jacob's descendants become the nation of Israel, Esau's descendants grow into a great nation called Edom. And that's how we end up in Malachi, where God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Uh, it's a strong statement, and one that we potentially might struggle with. But this statement shows us that God's love involves a gracious choice. God chooses to love Jacob because of his own grace, not because Jacob deserves God's love, if you read the Genesis story, both Esau and Jacob behave poorly. 
God loves Israel because he chooses to. Also, as we look at these verses in Malachi, it becomes clear that the focus is more on Esau's descendants than Esau himself. Uh, The Edomites had a reputation for anger and violence, especially against Israel. As probably the most awful example of this, when the Babylonian army attacked Jerusalem, the Edomites lay in wait to capture and kill those who were fleeing the city, and then they handed over those captives to the Babylonians, who were known for their cruel warfare tactics. So although Edom and Israel shared a common ancestor, the Edomites delighted in the suffering of Israel. And so God's love for his people is expressed in hatred and judgment on those who hurt his people. By the time of Malachi, Edom had experienced this judgment. They'd also been defeated by the Babylonians and their land had become an empty wasteland. The Edomites might have looked at Israel's recent success in rebuilding their city and their temple and been encouraged to do the same. Uh, But today, there's no country called Edom. Their cities were never rebuilt. God's judgment was poured out on Edom. As we wrestle with this concept of God's love expressed through his choice, it's important for us to realise that Malachi the prophet isn't actually speaking to the Edomites. He's speaking to Israel. In these verses, God powerfully reminds Israel that their ability to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, was only because God was on their side. Look how easily they could have turned out like Edom. But because God loves his people, instead they've experienced his blessing and protection. Israel asks, really God? Do you really love us? And God answers, yes. Just look at your history. Look at the way I've chosen you and blessed you. And God's love expressed in his choice doesn't just happen in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, uh, quotes Malachi, chapter 1, as he explains the same idea. Thanks, Sam. Paul says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is God. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And these words are written for our instruction and comfort to assure us as God's people that he loves us. But God's choice has also been expanded because of Jesus. God chose the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and now God has chosen anyone who comes to Jesus in faith. The invitation to experience God's love is open to anyone, whatever our nationality or religious background or life experience. Does God really love us? Yes. 
And we can be certain he loves us because he has chosen to love us. Not because of our efforts, but because of his mercy. Well, so far, Israel has been the one asking the questions and God has graciously responded to his people. Uh, But in the next section, the spotlight is turned directly onto Israel as the interrogation is reversed. Now it's God asking the questions. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. We can understand, I think, the gist of this, of this illustration today. We know that those in authority over us deserve some honour and respect because of the hard work they do and the responsibility that they have. In ancient Near East culture, recognising authority and giving honour were even more significant. A father was due honour. A master deserved respect. But the Lord Almighty... Israel's deliverer and king gets only contempt and disrespect. And the worst offenders... One more slide. Well, in verse 6, if we keep reading, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. The worst offenders were the priests... The leaders set aside to worship God and make sure he received the glory he deserved. Um, Again, there's a bit of background that we need to know so that we can understand the full horror of what's going on here. Out of his gracious love for Israel, after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, God gave them the priesthood and the sacrificial system. They didn't have to offer sacrifices in order to be saved. God had already done that. Offering sacrifices was about responding to God's love and salvation with thankfulness. It was about maintaining and enjoying relationship with God, worshipping God as he deserved. And Israel had been commanded to give only the best of their flock or their harvest to God in order to show their thankfulness. After all, he's the Lord Almighty. He's the one who gave them everything they had. However, in Malachi's day, the priests were deliberately sacrificing defiled food on God's altar. They were offering animals that were lame, diseased, half dead already. Not even a human governor would accept an animal like that as a gift or as a payment. And yet the priests think they can get away with offering these second-rate sacrifices to God. So what was the problem with that exactly? Well, our New Testament reading from Mark's Gospel helps to flesh that out. Uh, A teacher of the law, a leader in the Jewish community, asks Jesus, what is the most important commandment in God's law? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 as he answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To which the religious teacher replies in the next slide. To love God with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself 
is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This religious teacher has got to the heart of the law and the sacrificial system. The important thing wasn't the offering itself, but the heart attitude of love. In response to God's love, Israel was called to love him in return by worshipping him properly. But instead of enjoying this relationship, the people shower God with contempt. And then they have the nerve to ask for proof of their sin. How have we shown contempt for your name? It's a bit like a child who's been caught obviously doing the wrong thing and just continues to brazenly deny it. The, chapter, the, the people started this chapter in Malachi arrogantly asking God, do you really love us? But here God turns the tables and asks Israel, do you really love me? Because it certainly doesn't look that way. But we already saw God's judgment against Edom for their hatred and contempt. And now we see that God also judges his own people when they show contempt for him. In the next slide. God says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, and I will accept no offering from your hands. The temple was the place where God met with his people, Israel, where his people could come and pray to him, where they could make fellowship offerings and feast with God. But now the Lord Almighty longs for someone to shut the temple doors so that the priests won't keep offering second-rate sacrifices. He wants to cut off Israel's access to his presence. These are God's chosen, beloved people. He gave them the sacrificial system so that they could dwell with him. But their worship is so insulting. Their sin is so repulsive to God that he doesn't want them anywhere near him. Next slide. Uh, if you've spent much time with dogs, you'll probably be aware that most dogs love rolling in things that smell disgusting. Uh, my last family dog, uh, Bailey, was a gun dog, so he was always following his nose. And it felt like almost every time we went to the local park uh, and we walked him off leash, he'd find something disgusting to roll in a dead possum, some fish bait. Uh, one time he found a rotten old chicken carcass and managed to roll in it and then eat part of it. When we got home from our walk, Bailey would be shut out of the house until we had a chance to hose him off and get him smelling a bit better. At a much greater magnitude, that's what our sin does to us. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. When we fail to worship God as he deserves, we're like Bailey the dog when he's just rolled in a rotten chicken carcass. Our sin makes us filthy. Our rejection of God's love is absolutely repulsive to him. Let that just sit for a minute. Personally, I don't spend enough time just sitting with my own sinfulness. The fact that every one of my thoughts, 
words and actions is marred and twisted by sin. But it's only as our eyes are open to the enormity of our sin that we also see more of God's love for us. Jesus has come and washed us clean from the disgusting filth of our sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice offered once for all. He has opened the temple doors permanently so that we have direct access to God through his body. But to do these things, Jesus had to take our sin on himself. He willingly offered himself to be covered in our filth so that God's judgment and hatred of sin were poured out on Jesus. We ask God, do you really love us? Yes, God replies. Look at what I've done for you. Look at how I came to rescue you. Look at the price I paid. I took on your sin and gave my life so that you could have new life. And God turns the tables and asks, on us and asks us, what are you doing with the new life I've given you? Do you really love me? That's the question. Do our actions, our priorities reflect our love for God? Do I worship God by giving the best of my flock, the best of my harvest to the Lord Almighty? Do I lay down everything I love best before God because I love God more? Would I give up my security, my ambition, my independence because I love God and love others? Would you sacrifice these things? And ultimately, it's not about the size or the impressiveness of the sacrifice. It's about our heart attitude of love. Have we responded to God's offer of love and will we give him the love and worship he deserves? Well, our passage in Malachi ends with this verse. God says, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Despite Israel's second-rate worship, despite our failure to love and worship God perfectly, the Lord Almighty will still receive the honour he deserves. Jesus did what we could never do. He loved and served God the Father perfectly. And when we come to Jesus, giving up our pride and contempt, our small, imperfect offerings can bring glory to him. So we're going to sing now, which is perfect timing. Let's stand and sing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died.